There's got to be
introduce you to amazing grace. No matter the bumps, no matter the bruises, no matter the scars, still the truth is the cross has made, the cross has made you Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us at First Christian Church. Our Digging Deeper class will meet in person and online following our service. They'll be held in the Worship Center until 11 a.m. Winter Devotional Yoga is on Thursday evenings from 6.30 to 7.30 for the next two weeks. We would love to have you join us. We are in the process of updating our church directory. Forms to fill out your contact information were mailed out in the newsletter, but you can also pick up another copy on the table outside of the worship center. Please have these returned to the church office by March 7th. We will have a Lent guide available to pick up beginning on Sunday, February 14th. If you'd like a copy mailed or emailed to you, please contact the church office before the 14th. That's all the announcements for today. Enjoy the service. In case you're not able to understand Charlie Brown's teacher, we just played that video and the audio was fine on the computer. So, I don't know what happened. So if we do a little verbal announcements at the end, maybe. We'll, we'll reinterpret. Gotta love electronics, right? Anyways, it's nice to see you. If you want to stand up, we'll, uh, we'll pray and... Uh, Praise God. Uh, Father, we love you. We're here for you this morning. Uh, we thank you for this building, for this room to be sheltered from the cold. And uh, we thank you for um, the volunteers outside clearing the walks and everything, getting it so we can come in here. Uh, we praise you for being you, for being with us always, for always having the best for us in mind. And we take faith in that. We have faith in that when we can't see it, God. So I pray that we rely on you always and keep you center of everything we do. Days don't go the way we want when electronics don't work the way we expected them to. Uh, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, if we got nothing, we're here for you and praise are just the voices, God. So we love you. We give this time to you. May these words glorify you and lift you up. And as we hear your word today, God, we pray for Leonard, pray for our minds, our ears, our hearts to be open, just to see how you want us to grow today, God. Love you and we praise you. Survey the glory of your eyes. 
It's good to be with you all this morning. Hope you uh, didn't have too much of a problem slipping and sliding your way to worship uh, uh, this Sunday. Last Sunday, I was in a conversation with Jason Austin. I said, you remember a few years back whenever every Sunday we would get dumped on with snow, and it was Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. You could almost chart it out. And I thought, isn't it great to not have that happening? Well, we kind of had that, and maybe I jinxed it a little bit. Uh, so I want to unjinx it, hopefully, uh, by just saying, yeah, um, uh, maybe I'm responsible for, uh, for, for what you had to face today. But chances are, in the broader scheme of things, uh, I believe it's just the way God set up the created order and everything actually is under his care. And I really want to drive that point home to you guys this morning and you guys online because we do live in a time where there's a lot of unpredictability, there's uncertainty, there's obviously concern about where things economic and things socially are going. And if you're a young person, it's even more difficult uh, to try to make sense of what is happening in the world around you. If you're looking to go into a vocation, it is difficult to try to, to project out what it is that I want to spend the rest of my life doing when you just don't really know. And I've certainly seen uh, my kids go through that, and uh, my youngest one especially. Uh, but you know the thing that I noticed more importantly besides what it is that I'm going to do with the rest of my life, it is the need for young people in that formative space, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, who are looking for mentors, for people that can be, like we just sang, that righteous guide who directs the path for me, that person that has all that experience that has gone before me and knows the path and knows the risks and the terrain and the opportunities and the possibilities. I remember being 19, and I had, in hindsight, um, what I would call the, um, the arrogance of ignorance. I thought I knew it all, at 19, and I discovered whenever I got to be about 25, oh yeah, there's a lot of things I don't know. But I was pretty arrogant in that moment because I just couldn't see anything except what I knew and what I experienced, and I assumed that was all that there is. And then there was a fellow who came into my world, and his name was Jim Brown. And I hadn't looked to Jim Brown as somebody that I would uh, think back 20, 30 years later and say, I'm grateful that I met that guy when I was age 19. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty simple story. I was looking uh, to go to college and, 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 and find a part-time job, and it sort of evolved into a full-time job. And it was as a mechanics assistant in a, for a trucking company. And the mechanic that I was an assistant to name was Jim. And I knew right away that Jim was not going to be an easy person 
to work with. He was repeatedly frustrated with my inability to carry out tasks the way in his mind they needed to be done. But what I appreciate about Jim was even though he would let me know, he would also show me how. And I spent a year getting to like this guy more and more and more and appreciate this guy. And if I were to meet him today and say, Jim, you actually were a mentor to me in ways that you can't even imagine. Had I not met you, I don't know that I would even be the person that I am today, especially when it comes to looking at things with a greater sense of clarity and accuracy, when it comes to solving problems, when it comes to having a work ethic. It was really a privilege to spend a year with this guy. Well, that was Jim Brown, but there was another person who was coming into my world that I was also trying to figure out, and his name was Jesus. And at the time, I thought, well, it's Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus, first name, Christ, last name. Because I really didn't know much about Jesus at the time. Uh, I had heard his name mentioned, even in the trucking company, in ways that I don't know were biblical. Uh, and I would heard his name mentioned by people who were televangelists on TV, but I didn't understand at the ground level what it would be like to spend a year or two or three just walking around and looking at situations and understanding what they were and then, and then problem solving and then learning so much about a way of life that had a lot to do with the deeper needs beyond just repairing trucks and cars. And it was a way of life that was in the business of repairing and resetting souls. And once I began to discover that this really was his intent, it sort of became an obsession for me to try to sit at his feet as well. Well, as you know, it's, it's, it's impossible in the way that it's structured to sit at his feet in a literal sense. But what I discovered uh, alongside that was when I went to church and I met a pastor named Bill Stark, he, in many ways, embodied a, a lot of the characteristics that I read about in the Scripture when I went to understand who Jesus was. And as we're going through this message series on Luke, I want you to understand that the reason why we are carefully going through uh, chapter by chapter uh, of the storyline of this pretty amazing story is we want you at the ground level to be able to experience your life in relation to him just like the disciples as they tracked with him for three years, they endured his rebukes, but they also made careful note of the things that he did. And that was the whole point. You see, the notion of being mentored and having a mentor and having somebody that can teach you those things that you know is actually a time-honored tradition. And Jesus came into basically the public arena at age 30 
so that he could take the, the summation of his experiences, both as being a man raised on of a carpenter and a tradesman, but also recognizing that his vocation not only spanned sort of being a, a mechanic's assistant or a carpenter's assistant to become a carpenter, to become a mechanic, but it also spanned how to be a doctor of souls, a person who could go to the deepest level of our humanity and completely reset that. For the 12 people that Jesus walked up to and said, follow me, they had no idea what kind of a privilege it would be to sit at the feet of this rabbi. Now, that's an interesting word, rabbi, because in a lot of ways, it is a definition for what it means to be a master mentor uh, over a person who is sitting at the feet of uh, that particular mentoring, um, uh, uh, I, I guess, symbol in, in, in their lives because uh, not only would they experience firsthand what it was like to spend time with them, but just like myself and Jim Brown, um, I, I do ask the question on a, a pretty common, regular basis, how would Jim solve, solve this problem? How would Jim tackle that? What would, what would Jim's approach be to this? It just gets locked down in your head. So Jesus is spending three years with three people that he first called, Peter, James, and John. And then there's 12 that also additionally are, are included to spend time with him every day. For three years, and what was it like to be in their shoes and to witness firsthand what Jesus did? Well, Luke tells us that Jesus established his credentials as a person who would have authority over other people in a way that shaped and transformed their lives um, that uh, only an authority figure could do. All right, you with me so far? Now, we read in the book of Luke, falling on the hills of what uh, Rich shared last week, um, a, a very strong, powerful message on the notion of repentance. And repentance is basically saying, let's look at those things in our lives that we need to take inventory of that are getting in the way of us moving forward in our journey. It is a way of saying God has a righteous standard. He's given us a righteous guide named Jesus, and we have to kind of come correct. We have to not only sort out the deepest level of the needs in our heart, but we have to think about our habits and how they're uh, not working for a good purpose in our lives. And so John calls people to just get it right so that when the master teacher comes, they can sit at his feet, and they'll be prepared to learn. Now, we read in, John, or we read in Luke chapter 3 th these words, and I, I want to pay careful attention to what, what we're looking at. Um, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, you know, the one who is going to be the king, the anointed one, 
John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but the one who is coming, who is mightier, mightier than I, is coming to baptize you with um, uh, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's a very strong language essentially saying that God is calling people to get into a right space with him. And Jesus is the only one who is qualified as a master rabbi to enable that to happen. So John's setting us up to see the significance of who Jesus is, partly by saying, I know in the city of Jerusalem, a lot of people have been talking about me, and people have been coming out here in droves knowing that I'm a, I'm a prophet, kind of like Elijah, and they know that the situation in their hometown, it's just kind of jacked up. It's, it's a mess, and they're hoping that God will send somebody who will help it all to come correct, to help uh, the politics to be what they need to be, the relig religious people to be uh, 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 real and to have a way of life where the Roman soldiers aren't constantly harassing us. And so when they come out, John deals with all of these people who also know many of them, they need to come correct. But they don't have, like, my, my, my youngest son who is wanting to be mentored by someone who would be in line with his, his aspirations. I mean, I can do so much, but then there's that other person that is not a family member that can speak into his life. They were looking for that type of a figure, and John was essentially saying, believe it or not, I'm not that guy. I'm just one who is paving the way so that when that guy shows up, you'll be ready to hear what he has to say and to do what he has you do. And so he's, um, he's basically doing what I remember Jim doing. Jim threw a little bit of uh, unquenchable fire my way verbally uh, when I screwed up on a few things. And I never forgot it. It emblazoned itself on my psyche. And um, I, I remember he taught me how to back a semi-trailer. Anybody ever back a semi-trailer? Well, there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it. And I was backing it up, and I was just about to back into another trailer. And he comes out there, and he throws his wrench down. He's yelling. He says, stop. And then he shows me how to do it. Now I can do it in my sleep almost. And John's saying, there's a right way, and the one who is coming is going to show you. So let's just expand on this a little bit more, because the people not only recognized that the situation was sort of, uh, no, it wasn't. It was dramatically not in order. They also had a king who called himself, himself a Jewish king, that was Herod, who wasn't a legitimate king. His uh, forebearer um, was appointed by Julius Caesar because he was a Jewish convert. 
to go down and to be a king over the Jewish people. And so he had made the declaration, your Jewish king will be Herod and his kids. And everybody knew that Herod and company was just code language for that family is a train wreck and nobody wants to pay attention to what they're saying or doing. They have no authority whatsoever except by virtue of the Caesar. And so there's a longing for the king, a king like David, to show up and to make it right. And John was saying, he's coming. And it was so critical for him in his own convictions to share that message in the way that he did so that the one who, when he comes, it will be, it will be an onboarding of the king in the best way possible. Oh, there's a problem. The king. And there's, there was a king who said, I don't like what you're saying, John. You're out. And John said, I'm good with that. And we know the story, don't we? John was later beheaded. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible crime against God and his purposes by a so-called Jewish king. So there's a vacuum here. How do you fill the power vacuum of a king who is incompetent when you don't really have a king? Well, the person who filled that role, and there was roughly between 35 and 60 of these people running around uh, the landscape of, the, of, of, of Israel at that time, and these were called rabbis, but they weren't just any rabbi. They were rabbis who, um, well, there was a process in order to become a particular kind of rabbi that I, I want to just stop for a minute and uh, take you into. They were the designated authority figures who could speak out on a broad range of topics and have people socially say, yeah, they are the educated ones, they are the appointed ones, they are the ones who, in a sense, religiously rule over us. They are the ones with authority. Now, Let's just go back to the story in Luke real quickly as I've set this backdrop of characters. And as we read what happened to John, we read in verses 21 and following of Luke chapter 3. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Already God is saying, God the Father is saying to the Son, you've not been a, you've not been a hard kid to raise because what is right has always been your burden. And through the course of your life up till age 30, you've always sought to please me and now I'm calling you to ministry I am ordaining you 
for the role of being not only a rabbi, but a king over my people. I am well pleased. And it is in a sense, God is giving him the mantle of responsibility to carry on his purposes that we've read about uh, so much in the Old Testament. This is a coronation moment. But hey, he's just in the desert with everybody else getting baptized. And so you might think that's not that significant. But let's just stop and think for a minute where this goes. And here we got to jump over to Mark chapter 1. And in Mark chapter 1, verses 22, he goes from being baptized to spending 40 days in the wilderness tempted, and then he shows up at the local synagogue. And there's something about this guy that everybody notices. He is on fire. And people, when he begins to uh, speak uh, from the word, they kind of perk up like, whoa, I've heard those words before, but there's something about the way he's saying those words that has a sense of authority. So in Mark chapter 1, it says, The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. And then in 27, it says, And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority that he even commands the unclean spirits? And they obey him. This is pretty dramatic stuff at the ground level because not very many people have authority, as I mentioned. And the people that do aren't doing this. There is something happening back in Mayberry that is just going to change everything from this day forward. And as we make careful note of that word authority, we find that it shows up a lot in the Gospels. And it seems to be a question that is in the air the whole time that he has ministry. And you know who's questioning it? Are a group of people known as the rabbis. And that word authority, it, it, it can mean, uh, by definition, um, it, it, it can mean power and control, and it can mean just that sense of I'm in charge. But that's not, that's not exactly what these people are thinking about. In the back of their minds, they're thinking about this word exousia, which is a Greek word for authority. And it means I have authority due to my ruling position. So let's just move on to the next slide and, um, and look at that. So just make a note of that. The people are doing the math, and they're saying, who is this Jesus? What is he up to? Because he's acting a lot like the rabbis. Now let's just take a rabbi for a minute, because you hear that word a lot. If you're a rabbi, you have something that has been handed down, some believe, from the time of Moses. 
Like Moses laid hands on Joshua, Joshua laid hands on someone else, and they laid hands on somebody else, and there was a transmission of a sense of power, a sense of responsibility, a sense of this is my purpose that went down from generation to generation to generation. And it was believed that the people that were the rabbis, a particular class of rabbis who ruled the way that they did, they were living in succession of those ordinations that happened through time down to their moment. And so in Hebrew, it was called the simichah, which is the ordination. And a rabbi typically would be ordained by the laying on of hands of a master rabbi who had authority to do that. But only 30 to 60 of them had reshut, which meant that authority to, well, they, they could do these things. Why, why is this important? These kind of rabbis... Let me just put uh, the, the slide with uh, Rabbi with Rashut could. They could pass legal judgments. They could bring a new interpretation to Scripture. And they could raise up disciples to follow them. Only 30 to 60 people in the whole land of Israel had this authority to do that. They could look at the law and they could say, the law says this, I think this is how we should rule. They could look at the Old Testament and they could say, this is what the Old Testament means. And they could raise up disciples and say, come and follow me. And I'm going to kind of download into your being everything that I've learned. And you're going to become essentially like me after we're all done, if you're really good at it. Only a select group of people had that kind of authority. Then there's Jesus. Who's Jesus? It would be like well, it would be like my dad, who's a truck driver, and myself showing up on the campus of MIT or Harvard and start talking about, you know, the deep things of life. They would look at me and they would say, Who are you? Where, where, where did you get your credentials to be able to speak to us in the way that you have? And they would probably kick me off campus. Well, when Jesus came on the scene, he's essentially the son of a truck driver. He's a guy that was the son of a stonemason who they would walk together over the hill to the other side to the community that was being built up with all this new money. And they put buildings together. And as they were doing that, he learned a trade. So there were educated people and there were tradespeople. And then this Jesus shows up and he's the son of a tradesman. But yet, he has something that you don't see in tradesmen. Authority. The kind of authority that is not from the standard place that you go to get authority from. Not from the succession of rabbis who went through the process of Simichah ordination and the special rabbis who had Rashut. This guy had none of that. And people are like, where is he coming from? Who does he think he is? And what right does he have to be able to weigh in on the law, describe what the Old Testament's all about, and what right does he have to call disciples and say, follow me? He's not qualified, and this is a problem. So as the, um, 
as it heats up a little bit, we read in Matthew, uh, it tells us that um, uh, the same thing, people in, um, in, in his place and time had this sense of awe that Jesus spoke as one who had authority. Now, let's just, let's just put this in perspective, okay? I want to drive this point home because it is necessary to know why Jesus is who he is. So imagine if you're a Jewish person and you get an education. You start off with Beth Sefer, which means you're in middle school. Then you go to Beth Talmud, and it's like playing basketball in high school. And if you're kind of good at it, you're actually, you actually go through a schooling called Beth Midrash. That is the ability to understand the scripture through the teachings of the previous rabbis and through looking at the Torah, the Old Testament. So you're kind of college educated. And then there is being a Talmud. That is, you're so good that people have been scouting you. And when they find you, they say, we want you on our team. And if you're really good on our team, when all-star season happens at age 30, you can become a rabbi if you're really good. You can be an all-star at age 30. However, however, if you want to be an all-star, a rabbi with authority, if you want to be a Hall of Famer, well, only rabbis who have been given reshut in their ordination are of that caliber. About as high as you can go. And so when they say, you are teaching as one with authority, in essence, they're saying, this guy, we don't know who he is, but he's a Hall of Famer right out of the gate. Now there's a showdown that happens between Jesus and the rabbis because he's not doing it their way. And this is how it plays out. If you want to look in your Bible, feel free to look at Matthew 21 because something interesting happens that is sort of the whole point in this exploration. In Matthew 21, it says, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people, that is, you know, the basically body of people that were the collection of all of these all-stars, came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Who are you? And, you know, they're just thinking, we're just going to plow this guy under the ground and be done with it. But the thing about being a rabbi is obviously you don't get there just by being a slacker. You get there by being shrewd, and in Jesus' case, shrewd and innocent. And Jesus did what a typical rabbi did, answer a question with a question. Any, any parents here ever have their kids ask you a question after you ask them a question? We kind of call that deflection, don't we? But in this case, Jesus is actually reeling them in. This is how clever he is. He said, I will also ask you one question. And they're like, he's trying to play our game. And if you tell me the answer, then also, I, I also will tell you 
by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven? That is from God? Or from man? So they step back and they're like, hmm, that's a hard question. Uh, so here's what happens. It's sort of like, this is a knowing question. Um, if we say from heaven, that is from God, he will say to us, then why did you not, um, why did you not believe him? Why did you not believe him? You remember what we read at the beginning? Jesus, John was asked, are you the Christ? And he responded, no, I'm not that guy. But there's one who's coming who is. So they know. And Jesus says, do you believe John's baptism? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd because the crowd, they believe in John's baptism and they believe that he was a prophet. And how could it be a prophet if he was lying about those things, about the one who is to come, that he's not worthy to untie his sandals? So you with me so far? Because actually what Jesus is trying to get them to admit is that his authority is legitimate. But it doesn't come from their ordination process. And so they're kind of stuck because he's kind of brought them back to the beginning of the story once again where Jesus was baptized. And essentially he's saying, what do you all make of that? You think I'm the real deal? Or am I just making this stuff up? So the response was, we don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. It was kind of a checkmate. He had humiliated them in front of everybody. And he had undermined everything that they had established as a ruling elite of religious leaders. He had undermined so much about their institution and the way that it had been set up. And he was redirecting the eyes of the people to a new way that we were being called to live. And it wasn't just of those people that were being called to live that. If we're his disciples, we're called to live that as well. Because what he gave to them, they gave to us. And I think that's pretty exciting stuff, honestly. No matter where you live, no matter what's going on socially or culturally or whatever, we live in a space that is defined by the one who is in authority. That's helpful for me. As I go to bed, even though the world is kind of coming unglued, at that level, if I lived a way of life that all I, all I knew was what I saw, like that arrogance of the 19-year-old ignorance, I think I'd become an unglued too. But if I live my life in a way that says, 
I've been paying attention to the things the master's been telling me. And he sees stuff that most people can't see, and he's helping me to see it as well. And the way I got there was I had to be baptized and brought into a new way. I had to take that stuff that I had in my life that was not right with God, and I had to deal with it with him. And then I just had to walk into it in a spirit of trust that this guy who is coming with this brand of authority that I've never seen before is the real deal. So when the father allowed the son to begin his ministry, you know what that was? That was his simica ceremony where God gave him his reshoot. And as this thing played out over time, these guys said, if we don't win you by the words of our institution as we've set it up, because he's obviously not playing our game, we're just going to kill him. And they did. And then they were done. Because, hey, we all live at this level, don't we? We all get up in the morning and put our trousers on the same way. He's dead. And it is over. My problem was, the reshoot that he was given, uh, it was beyond this. And it was a lot about this into this. And Jesus is the one who brings that here. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it's already happening in heaven. Bring it down. And Jesus brought it down for you and I because he's got big things in mind as far as what needs to happen, and it's beyond just getting Herod out of office. It's beyond getting these guys sorted out. It is about resetting our very humanity. That's a pretty tall order. And so when they killed him off, how is he going to accomplish that other than when the father said, it's time to come out of that grave. It's time to begin the process of resetting this whole thing top to bottom with a new humanity. You know, when Luke gave the genealogy, which is connected to this, it tells us at age 30, Jesus began his ministry. But then it gives us a long, anybody do, um, what's the history thing you can get your blood done and they can tell you? Thank you. Ancestry.com. Luke does an Ancestry.com, and he says, essentially, Jesus goes through a pretty, pretty significant line of people, all the way back through David to Abraham to Adam to God. And Luke does that intentionally because the reason why we're going through the book of Luke is it is, wouldn't you agree with me, Rich? It is a profound declaration of the resetting of our very humanity in Christ. And we need to go back to the fundamentals of who we are as Christians and ask ourselves, why are we here? 
And if we don't spend some time looking at Jesus from the ground level and getting some fresh eyes on the significance of who he is, we're not really going to know. But I want you guys to understand something. What is happening out here is under the watchful eye and the authority of the one who is up there. And if he's letting, ha letting it happen out here, He's probably got a pretty good reason. And if he's got you and I in here while he's letting this happen here, and we are under his authority, he's going to watch out for us. But the only way we can really engage with that protection is to trust him with our lives. I know a lot of people were just dying about the election or thrilled about the election. I got news for you. The news is only telling you part of the story. The good news that John was preaching was, and this is the more important part. I'm so thankful I've had your attention on this because it is so critical for us to wrap our minds around knowing that Jesus came to be the true king. Rich and I were just talking about this sidebar. There's a passage in 1 Samuel uh, 9 and 10 that talks about the anointing of the first king, Saul, who was a dismal failure and in every way kind of described the failure of Adam and us in Adam. But there are all these patterns that parallel the calling of Saul to be king that actually are repeated in Luke that it is just a way of saying we're resetting it. And... As Paul writes later on, he says, he's not only our king, but he's transforming us into a new creation. In 1 Corinthians 15, 48, it says, as was the man of dust, Adam, so also are those who are of dust. And that's everybody who is just born into this world. And as is the man of heaven, that is the one who is been given the ordination from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven, that is, those who are ordained with him in heaven. And just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we also in him bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, that's not just a bunch of Bible talk. These are spiritual realities that we are not capable of fully comprehending the significance of in this life. But as it unfolds, we see it. We see people starting to behave less in terms of anger and jealousy and lust and rage and being offended and ground level, I'm an insecure person and I can't let this stuff affect who I am to a life that is filled with love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Where does that come from? But the very spirit that came down into Jesus' life coming into your life of mine that Luke talks about later. Well, as you know, I'm pretty excited about this stuff, and for good reason. And there's obviously a lot more that we can share but my biggest concern at the end of this message is if you've had a mentor 
in your life, and you know the value of that. Well, there is one who spiritually is here to mentor you and I and all of us through each of us as we embody as disciples the spirit of the one who ordained us. We mentor one another. And we grow in our understanding in relationship to one another. I remember the first day I walked into the, to the trucking company garage. And I met Jim. And Jim's like, you're the new guy. Come on in. Here's some coveralls you can put on. Let's get to work. And God's saying, come in from out there into here, and let's get to work. And it begins with us saying, I don't know what I'm getting into, but I'm leaving stuff behind so that I can be shown what is on the road ahead. So we repent, we're baptized, and we're called into a new relationship with him. And the journey begins. But like all of us, even Jesus himself, who's not a hypocrite in this process, we all got to go out there to the River Jordan and go through the process so that we can begin. And some of you may or may not have gone out to the River Jordan because you didn't want to, like the religious leaders, let it go. And God's saying, if you're really paying attention, you see it. And you need to turn from that to my son, who I'm well pleased with. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. And he wants to call you into a way of life that's demanding, that's beyond anything that we're capable of, that is in so many ways redefining of our humanity. And that's what we're calling you into as um, we take this time and we, um, we, we, we allow the soaking of the presence of Jesus through his word to soak into our souls. Then he's going to come up here uh, now and he's going to lead us into a time around the Lord's table. And as he does, it's just a way of embodying the image of our mentor, of our high priest of so much. And so I'm just going to leave it at that and ask you, Denny, to come up and lead us to the table. So, the other disciples told him, We 
seen Jesus. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers into his sides, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with those, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them, and he said unto them, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God. He said unto him, Behold, because you have seen me here, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As I read that, the important part for me was the fact that Jesus, Jesus took the time to reconfirm Thomas's belief. He didn't write him off. He didn't say, ha, why can't you believe like the rest of these guys? What's the matter with you? He took an effort. And why? Think back. Remember the story of the 99 sheep? One was missing. What happened with that good shepherd? What did he do? He went to look for that one lost sheep. What we have to remember is that Christ loves us all unconditionally. Not who you are, not what you do, not where you come from, not what you wear, not the color of your skin, who your parents were. He loves you and me because he created us. And when we come to the table, we're celebrating fact that Jesus died on the cross take all of our sins. Pray. Heavenly Father, we are truly blessed to be your children and to know that your love is unconditional and supporting. That Father, you give unto us those things that we truly need and provide each day that we may continue. Father, we know that in and through you, our belief is strong, that our faith in you and the faith in the things that you share with us may not be realized in this earth, but will be realized. Faith comes from those things that are unseen. And Father, we believe in you but we have never seen. We know you are here. We know that we can speak with you, we can talk to you, and you will answer our prayers, conversation. 
Father, as we commune together today, we ask that you bless these emblems to our body. Bless them as we continue to honor and to serve you in everything that we do. We ask and we pray these things through your blessed name. Amen.
Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Sin had left a crimson stain. He confrontation it put on some of our hearts. Thank you for the deburdening that you offer when that happens. I pray that you would do work no matter where we're at. We have all have these different levels of nearness and farness from you, but you're the one who comes out to us and brings us back. You're the one who comes and brings us in in the first place. You loved us first. You come into our life, and um, ready or not, here you are. And thank you for that, because we would never choose you otherwise. I pray for your saving work, your sanctifying work, that it would lead to comfort for us. I know we got to go through some roughness to get there, but it's worth it if we because you, you endured a cross to get to crown. Grant us that same strength and attach our hearts to God. It's for your wonderful name we pray. Thank you. Amen. I will see you soon. Digging Deeper is going to take place in a few, in a few minutes. And uh, yeah, we'll see you soon. Love you. See you next week.